God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. Jesus dying in our place displays God's love, but how does it satisfy God's justice? Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Katsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we continue on in our series, Two Ways to Live, with a message titled, Jesus Died for Us. Now, Pastor, we're in this great series where you're breaking down the gospel into its six basic aspects. So before we get to today, let's get a review of where we've been. Yeah, so the overarching theme is that there's two ways to live, either living under the rule and the reign of God as the king or living life your own way. And we see that in the Bible through these component parts. We see that God is the ruler of the world and then he made the world and then he made us to rule his good world, giving thanks and honor to him. The second part we see is that we all reject God as our ruler by running our own lives our own way. And by rebelling against God's way, we damage ourselves, each other, and the world. And the third part is that God won't let us rebel against him forever. If he is really a king and he really is a God of justice, he's not going to let us rebel against him forever. His punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. And that leads us to today when we see that Jesus died for us. And somebody who questions Christianity could look at you and say, really, it's that easy? One guy dies and everybody's okay? Yeah, that is a great question. And so we have to look at the details of how Jesus dying for us actually satisfies God's justice. And that's what we do in the message today. What is the motivation for it? Why is it significant? And how? How does it satisfy God's justice? And we're going to talk about that. That's good because I think a lot of people have questions on that. And it's an important aspect of why we can proclaim we're saved when we confess in Christ and believe in him. Yeah, it sure is. So let's get now to that message where he breaks it down for us. Here's Pastor Nick with Jesus Died for Us. The affair had been going on for years. The attraction and eventual surrender to unfaithfulness had actually surprised both people. They thought of themselves as honorable. The woman was happily married, living in an enviable situation with a truly great man. Her lover was an achiever at the highest level. He was a most trusted friend and compatriot of the woman's husband. If they were ever discovered, what would the husband do? The laws of the land required that capital punishment would occur in the case of such unfaithfulness. This was the story of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot in T.H. White's novel, The Once and Future King, better known to most of us as the famous movie musical Camelot. In the book, Arthur's illegitimate son, Mordred, exposes the affair, forcing Arthur to confront the incredible dilemma of bringing justice to bear on those he loves the most. Before the affair was exposed, Arthur had explained the need for justice to Guinevere and Lancelot. You will find, Arthur said, that when kings are bullies who believe in force, people are bullies too. If I don't stand for law, 
I won't have law among my people. You see, Lancelot, I have to be absolutely just. Far from being willing to execute his enemies, a real king must be willing to execute his friends. That dilemma of the king's justice pitted against the king's love is captured in the musical Camelot when Mordred sings, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. Let her die and your life is over. Let her live and your life's a fraud. Which will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or kill the law? We could say that God's dilemma is very similar in its nature. You see, as we've talked about over the last number of weeks, God is the loving creator and king of the world, that we have rebelled against the king in our sin, and that the punishment for that sin is death and judgment. This creates an incredible dilemma for God because God created us. God loves us. God cherishes us. God formed us from the dust of the earth and made us into his very own image. And then he breathed life into us. You can't get any more intimate, any more personal, any more caring than that. And yet, we have gone our own way. We've rebelled against God. We've deliberately defied his commands and we refuse his overtures of love and reconciliation. We rebel against the king. And so here's the dilemma. These two attributes of God, his love and his justice seem to be pitted against each other. And as we've seen, So many of God's attributes are intertwined in their nature. They're linked together. Holiness and righteousness and justice are all linked. You can't pull them apart. God must give justice through judgment. It cannot be any other way because he's holy and because he's righteous. And his wrath against Sin and sinners is real and it's strong and it's powerful. And at the very same time, God loves the ones who deserve justice. You. Me. So what should the king do? Well, the Bible tells us that the king sent his son to die. And he did so to display his love and satisfy his justice. And this morning, I want to focus on two passages in Romans that point us to that reality, that Jesus came to die to display God's love and to satisfy God's justice. The first one is Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is what it says. Follow with me. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So pause with me and just consider how the motive of God's love or the motivation of God's love against the backdrop of his wrath is made clear. Look at the phrases. Verse 10, we were enemies of God. Rebels against the king, as we've been talking about. Verse 6, we were still weak. He goes on to say ungodly. Verse 9 implies that we were indeed destined for wrath. And this was just in its nature. That idea of God's wrath does not sit well with us often at all. We so quickly and easily diminish the significance of our own sin. We prop up our own levels of righteousness. But in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards describes it this way. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. But verse 8 tells us that despite this justice, the requirement for justice and judgment for sin, and the wrath that ensues from God, God shows his love for us in sending Christ to die for us. In verse 11, the death justifies us. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It saves us from wrath and it reconciles us to God. There's a lot more we could say about that, but for today, God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. And that love is displayed against the backdrop of a required justice. And so that begs the question, how does Jesus dying actually satisfy God's justice? Jesus dying in our place displays God's love, but how does it satisfy God's justice? 
Flip back just a few pages to Romans chapter 3 with me, if you have your Bible still open. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about justice, and he's talking about God's need to uphold his righteousness. Remember, holiness, God's purity, righteousness is that purity as applied to beings around God, justice. These things are all interlinked with each other. And Paul says this, starting in verse 21, is God's righteousness, should that be questioned? Or can it be upheld? But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the problem that's identified. The problem is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God, the king of the universe, appears to have allowed this rebellion to happen for centuries without bringing about justice. And if that's true, and if God's justice is the other side of the coin to his righteousness, is God actually a righteous God? That's what verse 25 means when it says, God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Former sins can't be passed over if God is to maintain his righteousness. They have to be reckoned with. If God is going to be holy and righteous and just, judgment needs to occur. And yet those who had died had not received their full judgment. But then it goes on to say that God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. And this satisfies this need for justice in three specific ways. And this is really important. I thought long and hard about how and what I wanted to talk about this morning with regard to Jesus dying for us. And it's really important that you know why Jesus dying for us is effective for your salvation. That's not just merely an act of love, though it is. But it does something. And this is what it does. The first way that his death satisfies God's justice is through substitution. Now, you know, a substitute is a person or a thing that takes the place of another. And as we know, there are bad substitutes and there are good substitutes. I can't believe it's not butter is a bad substitute. 
for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is because we can believe it. We can believe it's not butter when we taste it. It's not a good substitute. But when an imperfect rebel like you and like me has a substitute to take our place in judgment, then this is a good substitute for us. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus is fully man and fully God. We see that proclaimed again and again. And in his humanity, he followed God perfectly. He followed his rule and reign of the king. He never once defied him, rebelled against him, or sinned. And as fully God, he was not some mere distant third party to step in and to take the penalty for you or for me. In fact, he is God. And as a result, we see that him taking the punishment is God himself taking the punishment of sin upon himself as the perfect substitute. This language of substitution is everywhere in the Bible. If Jesus is nothing, he is certainly a substitute. Romans 5.8, we just read it a minute ago. Listen to this substitution language. Christ died, but he didn't just die. He died for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Isaiah 53 Hundreds of years before Jesus came, the Lord has laid iniquity on us all. Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sin of many. John 1, 29, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not his sin, but the sin of the world. We see in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ to be sin, even though he was perfect. Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. Again, Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter, Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body. Our sins, his body on the tree. Jesus was the perfect substitute. The second way that Jesus satisfies God's justice on the cross is through what we call expiation. Now, that is a word that I am quite certain you've never used in everyday speech. It's not hard to understand. Expiation. X, the prefix X, very simply means out of. Expiation has to do with the removal of something or taking something out, taking something away. And in this case, it is the removal of our guilt. Expiation is another way to express the fact that Jesus atones for our sins. He takes our sins away from us and he puts it on himself. The Old Testament paints the picture of this wonderful forgiveness, this removal of sin that's related to God's love. It's profound in its effect, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in Psalm 103, 
verses 11 and 12, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's a beautiful picture. As far as the east is from the west, the farthest possible distance in our finite conception, that's how far God removes sin from us. That's expiation, the removal of sin and guilt. And the third way that Jesus satisfies God's justice is this word that we see in a number of different Bible texts. It's another word we never use, propitiation. If X means out of something, then pro means for something. God's wrath is turned away from us and turned toward Jesus on the cross as he bears the guilt and the sin. God goes then from being at enmity with us to being for us. This morning we sang a song about God being for us. How do you know God is for you? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the only way you can know that God is for you. Think about it this way. That through this idea of Jesus on the cross, God's wrath is appeased. Now, when you think of appeasement, you might think of that in a marital sense. We're not going to go there. You might think of it in a political sense. There's a doctrine, a political doctrine of appeasement. Every few years, it seems like the dictator of North Korea makes some international threats, right? And then he pops off a test missile into the middle of the ocean to do a little bit of saber rattling. And in an effort and with a desire to not let this guy start another war, the Western nations kind of come around and they appease him. They get him to back down. And they do so by offering something of value, usually foreign aid to his country. And as a result, he settles down for a while until he needs something else. It was the doctrine of appeasement that many European nations enacted with regard to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich, hoping that they could get them to stop their advance through Europe. Sometimes appeasement works. Sometimes it doesn't work. But in both of those examples, this is not the type of godly manifestation of appeasement that we're talking about here. Because if wrath is truly appeased, that means it is satisfied. It means that the anger that divided the relationship no longer exists. It's not going to only come back around a couple of years later. It means it is dealt with and gone forever. And as a result, the relationship is mended. Jesus is the propitiation for us. He satisfies the wrath of God. 1 John 2, 2 says this. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us, to mend the relationship. 
Romans 3.25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so you're starting to see the distinction, the component parts of what Jesus did on the cross all together create something incredible, but individually are important to understand. Guilt can be removed. But if guilt, if it's only guilt that is removed, the offended party could still have wrath for things previously committed. Thanks for listening today to A Better Word. I'm going to bring in Pastor Nick now, as we're so grateful for folks who support us financially. And this month, with your gift to A Better Word, we're going to send you a book that talks about Ecclesiastes. It's called Living Life Backward by David Gibson. Now, I love Ecclesiastes, but I admit, that's weird. A lot of people don't like it because it feels depressing. There is a ton of wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And what David does in this book is that it's not a commentary. He's not going through verse by verse. It's a book that encapsulates the ideas of Ecclesiastes in a contemporary and very practical way. And the main idea of Ecclesiastes is this. How do you live your life in light of the Lord and the end? How do you live life backwards? How do you start at the end and then move back into the present and make decisions and find happiness and joy in light of all of those things in a way that's wise. Does that connect to your heart in some way? Well, again, with your gift this month to A Better Word, we'll send you a copy of David Gibson's book, Living Life Backwards, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. Go now to abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. You can find out more information about the ministry and how to get your gift in today. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio.